Welcome to our new podcast, Discovering Community Psychology, a podcast hoping to make community psychology ideas and practice more accessible. Throughout our first mini-series, we'll be speaking with numerous psychology professionals about their work, highlighting and celebrating variety and the impact of their positive practice, influenced by community psychology ideas and values. So hello and welcome back to this evening's episode on our podcast, Discovering Community Psychology. And a warm welcome to any new listeners joining us tonight. I'm Gina, a trainee clinical psychologist, and I'll be co-hosting tonight's episode. And joining me as a host is... Uh, I'm Yasmin, also a trainee clinical psychologist. So there are a few other members of the group um, here with us tonight who are listening in live. And they may contribute questions, which we will visit at the end of the podcast if we've got time. And thank you to our guests who have joined us today. And um, thank you for letting us be part of this conversation as well. Can I hand it over to you to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what you do? My name is Tammy Reynolds. I use she, they pronouns and I'm a queer, disabled dwarf artist, activist, performer, person, and I'm also incredibly passionate about therapy. I have had it for about a year and a half, nearly two years. Um, It changed every week. I've had it for on and off for ages, but like my weekly best sessions and why I'm passionate about it is, um, yeah, this recent stint. And a lot of it goes into my work as a performer. I would do like live artist stuff and drag persona. Um, I have a drag persona called Majid Bardot. Um, and I kind of use a lot of um, the practice that I experience in therapy sessions to write and create and interrogate the audience and myself in my work. And I think that's why I'm here today. Hi, I am, I'm uh, Saeed Olaywada. I run uh, a company called SO Health. Um, I suppose I could call myself maybe a holistic well-being practitioner. I'm very passionate about physical and uh, psychological well-being and support individuals and workplaces in how they um, look after their, their physical and emotional well-being. Um, um, experience of therapy, um, I think it's therapy is something that everybody should experience. At some point, I've had some experience of therapy myself, um, and I was always a person that always felt um, I didn't need therapy. I grew up in an environment that was always about roll up your sleeve and get on with it until uh, situations in life. Um, I, the only thing I had to look to for support was actually getting some therapy, and it helped me kind of open up um, and kind of broaden my horizons into stuff. And I employ a lot of my um, learning that I learned from therapy, but also the uh, courses I've done myself and, and experiences to support um, individuals that, that, that come to us for support within my organisation, but also um, in the work that we do with companies as well. I'm Jamie Barton. Uh, currently, I work as a researcher on Housing First, which is a homelessness and housing service in, in Liverpool. Um, it, 
it's a pilot at the moment, but it's a service that is kind of being tested in other places and, and works seems to work um, quite well. For my MPhil, which I graduated in 2019, I studied storytelling and its relationship with addiction and recovery to substances. And during the course of that, there was a creative piece, which was a memoir. So there was a lot of writing involved, a lot of kind of going over my own story. And um, I've been interested in the kind of the use of storytelling and narrative um, to help people make sense of themselves and lives for a while. It's, it's helped me personally when I first started doing creative writing with like a creative recovery group, there was um, a real interest, which then kind of I followed it and got into mythological narratives and stuff and used that as a way to associate my own feelings with, I used to find it very difficult to see myself reflected in, in places. And um, that was a really basic way for me to start, which so that's where my interest in kind of mythology and storytelling comes from. And I've worked with groups of people to make um, writing and art, and some of those people have had um, mixed experiences with homelessness, mental health, drug and alcohol addiction, and things like that. And I'm uh, <coughs> Steve Weatherhead. Uh, professionally, my job title is clinical psychologist. Um, I work with the... Liverpool Clinical Psychology Programme and also work with a small community interest company called Neurotriage who provides neuropsychological outreach support to uh, the homeless population of Liverpool and people who work with that population. Um, I have been with the Liverpool Programme. I don't speak on behalf of the Liverpool Programme at all. I'm speaking for just me um, here. Um, I've been here for about three and a half years now and met Jamie, Tammy and Saeed through um, this beautiful city and different projects we've we've worked on together. Uh, so that's my kind of professional background. Personally, I've got a long history of uh, in my family of mental health problems, addiction. Uh, I had a suicide attempt myself when I was 17 uh, years old. So a lot of um, experience of some of the bits of the system that um, kind of becomes oppressed generally in people's experiences and have um, overachieved in my job despite that probably thanked in part due to some of the demographics that give me uh, privilege and make it easier for me to, to, to get by and be forgiven for my mistakes. Thank you for that, uh, for the introductions and for sharing um, your different personal experiences and, and passions and work um, and the reason why you do a lot of the work that you do as well. Um, I was wondering if you could, I know Steve you mentioned that there's been some projects that have brought you together as a group, could you speak to us a little bit about that, some of the things you've worked on together? Yeah I think I think the first biggie was the Psychology Fringe Festival wasn't it? Um, yeah that was yeah, it was a massive one that one. So, so, so back, back in the day, there was um, obviously been a clinical psychology DCP um, conference for, for many years. And it's always felt like 
academics and clinicians talking about other cl academics and clinicians about the people who access services and it, it's always felt a bit weird um and uh when i was um involved more in the division of clinical psychology i was given support to develop what we call a fringe festival um where we kind of surrounded the conference with a bunch of other more exciting stuff that was open to everybody it was free with the exception of one uh, day conference that was a tenor on the Saturday. And we we put together a load of uh, events, music, storytelling, comedy, all sorts of great arts based stuff, um, exploring mental health and psychology and, and well-being. And I was introduced to Saeed through that. Jamie and I already knew each other through some um shared connections around homelessness in the city of liverpool and we just kind of um built this with with a bunch of other amazing people i think some of whom you've already interviewed aisha and will and nick and uh, a bunch of other folk who um really care about community well-being as well as individual psychological well-being so that was a bit of an adventure wasn't it but dude it really was you know what what kind of got me um with that was the fact that when you think of psychology, I think we had this conversation as well. So when you think of psychology or clinical psychology, you think of it as this kind of professional, high-level thing that you can only access if you have, um, well, challenges and things going on. And it's, it seems it seemed very clinical, but when you came with with the idea of the fringe, it was an opportunity to kind of bring the community involved in the conference. So even though a lot of the people that attended the fringe festival probably didn't attend the actual conference that took place at the hotel somewhere in, in Liverpool, but still felt part of the whole experience and, and the whole clinical psychology conversation um, with the fringe events that we did. And for me, that was really what was really powerful, bringing all these different people together from diverse backgrounds um, to get involved in this conversation about um, psychology, community, well-being and stuff. So it was, it, yeah, for me, it was a highlight of, what, what year was that? 2000 God no 17 maybe 17 17 17 18 yeah that was highlight highlight of my year that day to be honest it was really you nice. know one of one of the highlights of my career i remember we we did loads of zipping around between the different <laughs> going on at the same time i remember running out of one event um <clears throat> towards another to check how things were going on because there was only a small number of us trying to kind of uh, navigate and and coordinate all of this I remember running out as i was coming out um, there'd been a folk music guy uh, performing around his own mental health experience. And these two fellas getting into a car and um, one of them said to the other, um, you know, I've, I've been diagnosed with chronic depression. And his mate said to him, mate, I've known you for 20 years and you've never told me that. And I just happened to overhear it as I was walking out. And I nearly, <laughs> I still feel like I'm going to cry when I talk about it, because to me, that's, that's what all this was about. You know, making space for conversations that people don't easily have still now. We don't easily talk about mental health and, and well-being. And I think as psychologists, we often think, oh, we do all of that in the therapy room. We make loads of space for that. But there's shitloads of people out there like uh, Saeed, Jamie and Tammy who are doing what I think of as uh, community psychology, but don't have the tag as, of being a, a psychologist. And then I got to know Jamie and Tammy through another event we put on after that called Homelessness No Laughing Matter that 
Jamie was key in leading, really, and Tammy comparing. No, that was that was um, that was exciting. I think it was what was really nice about that was being able to get some of the people I was working with involved in that for them to get up on stage and kind of perform their work because I'd been doing writing with them for a while. It was it was a great chance for them to to get up on stage and 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 do their bit. You know, I, I think. Glenda um, was was very eager to get up and read, and she went on then, didn't she, to write to write her own book and stuff like that. Two, and two, books, it. two is it? Is she got the other one up as well? Yeah. And just with Paul as well, like how nervous he was, but how buzzing he was after it as well. And I, I, I and, and the stage was mine also. I had I had time to get up and perform my little story, tell, talking about myself and. It was dead hard only. How long did I have? 10 minutes or 12 minutes or something? Tammy made the prediction. She said, because he's a male, he'll do 12 minutes, even though he's only got 10. And then I did do 12 minutes, and she was right. And we should have probably <laughs> had a tenner on it because she'd have won a tenner. But it, I really enjoyed that. I got so much out of that. Um, but that was when we'd first met, wasn't it? And I was just still really exploring kind of the connection between how you grow up. So I was looking into adverse childhood experiences and how they affect your kind of, um, you know, your biology and your perception, things like that. Um, and it was, so I kind of did this theme about, because it was homelessness, I, I created a theme um, in my storytelling about the body being a home and that, like, you know, if your home hasn't been but built very well, you know, how can you settle into it and things like that? And and, and did a, a bit around that. And and I think like that kind of journey of, of thinking and, and looking into all those things has led me now to be able to get like a proper kind of diag not a diagnosis, but understanding of what my 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 mental health is, like the title of it. Like I have complex PTSD. And um so, so that was kind of like a, a key stage, being able to kind of like put, pull all these things together and still not to like a year later understand what, what it is that's, that's going on for me. How, is that how you met? Is that how you met Steve, Tammy? Did I introduce you to him or did you meet him somewhere else? Yeah, no, it's your fault. It is my fault. I apologise. Okay. But Tammy um, compared um, the events. Yeah, well, I was doing... Um, a lot of drag in Liverpool at that point um, and quite known for cabaret stuff. And then because it was an event that was combining stand-up comedians and then people storytelling who've had lived experience of homelessness, it was, I think, yeah, I and then me and Jamie know, know each other from university, went to the same uni, did creative writing together. Um, and basically I was very flattered to be brought in but also a bit uh nervous and terrified because I've not really I had no experience lived experience of one-on-one -on -one interactions with people who experience homelessness um outside of the public realm really of the street and so I was a bit naive and ignorant about how to kind of uh navigate that as a performer who would just I didn't want to come in and be like okay showtime I'm gonna make it about showbiz or whatever and um I 
have also had quite a bit of experience of hosting events where people read very potentially triggering poetry or prose and have had to learn how to sew it together um, between each person doing a thing. And so I thought it was really nice that they combined comedy with some, you know, elements of disclosure and like triggering content, which was necessary for those people to be able to share and express. Um, and so it was actually worked out really well and it was a really fun evening. And um, yeah, I think of Glenda quite often actually. Um, yeah, no, and it was just also fantastic to be able to help, or get, well, not help, but like give people the chance who've never stood on a stage before um, and who would never even have considered that being an option for them um, and being able to kind of step in and identify how I could help facilitate that was really nice um, and gave me a bit more confidence in myself as a performer, let alone as someone who is also diagnosed with depression and PTSD. Um, I wasn't, I had no idea what PTSD fully, like obviously there's a huge misunderstanding about what PTSD actually is and how many people and who can have it. Um, and I was not in, yeah, in an environment where that could be identified yet, but it was, yeah, it was just, it was a very, it was a wonderful event and it was really, yeah, it was one of my favorites, I think, that I've hosted because it was just so different and not just a load of drag queens. Can I say what I love? What I I was I was lucky and very blessed to have been um, to be sitting in the audience at, at at the event. And one of the things I loved most about it was that it felt very very safe. And it's it, it was it was strange that you entered a room. So we went upstairs at the Leaf, I think it was. And you entered, and everyone was talking, and the energy and the vibe, just it felt electric. But then when the sharing started everything felt safe and you could walk past people in the intervals and in the breaks and you hear conversations going on. And the whole room was alive, talking about um, just topics and experiences and what people have shared and stuff like openly shared. Um, and you never, you never get that. We never get this conversation about psychology and kind of trauma and stuff. And I've never, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a space where We've, I've experienced that again, if that makes sense. And I think as a community, these are the kind of things that we we need to do more of. So one of the things that we tried to do a couple of years ago was set up a, um, a kind of a sharing platform at the brink for, for men um, to just come and share and talk. And, and we never cracked it. We never figured out what the what the support or the formula, what it needed to look like to get people to come and just share and be safe in this space. And I kept thinking back to the event at, at, at LEAF and how it was a massive event, but it was also safe and people talked and openly. Steve, what, what do you think, what, what, what made that and how can we potentially? Oh, that's a big question, man. <laughs> so I think... Not putting you on the spot, mate. No, I think it's similar to like, why the four of us are doing this interview it, it's you've got to work with people you trust and people who will call you out if you push things too far but people who will push you far enough to to make you do something different and there's a transparency and an honesty in, in, in all of that so i know when i speak to any of you three you'll you'll say steve you're being a dick if i'm if i'm being a dick but you'll give me a hug while saying it 
you know, and you kind of want to create events and uh, community feeling that, that that's like that. It's just so much. Tommy, Tommy, you and I had a chat. Um, I can't remember if it was in um, person or if it was uh, in a text exchange recently where you were saying, well, why are you asking me to, to do this? And I, I, I just, I really feel like clinical psychology has this history of stealing other people's places and colonizing stuff, knowledge. And we, we, we risk doing that in, in community psychology as well now. And we've got to be really gentle in how we step into these places. And you three do this stuff and have done this stuff looking after the well-being of the community far better and for far longer than I ever, ever have. And so finding people that you can do that with and you can learn from is so important. I think you're, I don't think you're right about whether we do it far better. Um, I think that's the whole measurement scale that is, we're not even going to try to do. Um, I think what's very important to note is that a lot of us are in contact with people as let's identify ourselves for the sake of it as community psychologists and let, like let's just say that we are meeting different people at different stages of their mental health journey and well-being like I will not engage my art won't always be engaging with a lot of people who really need to see it because they won't have left the house that day and things like that and there's a difference in that sense of what like of that and I think going back to that homelessness, um, no laughing matter event I was really aware that I could potentially say a lot of things that were inappropriate or triggering or that yeah could make the safe that make that space no not as safe as it should be and especially not prioritizing the people who it really needs to be safe for and so I remember kind of deciding in my because I was having so many conversations with the new performers um, with people with the people that hadn't performed before and I was talking them and they're really nervous and there wasn't really anything the main kind of concern I had was about failure being completely fine and them understanding that if they last minute forget their words or they it's okay if they do have the piece of paper in front of them it's okay if their hands are shaking and you can see like it's part of the whole thing and so I decided to start the show by running on stage and then falling face first like completely first on my like it was very it, I didn't do a, I can't, I'm not an actor, so I can't do the fake fall. I properly fell. And I remember the second I fell, I regretted it, but then it made everyone relax a bit more about what could go right and what could go wrong. And I think, and what that even means anyway. And so I think in a similar, in I think both of the professions of, okay, so yes, D identified that what I do is, can be seen as community psychology, which I'm not going to lie to you. I loved, I loved that a lot. <laughs> really, like, gonna, I'm gonna put that in my bio. I think now, but um, but I think it's about the fact that both um, roles of let's like clinical psychologists and artists or performers have a responsibility for whoever's in that room to an extent, um, and have a responsibility of. I believe anyway I have a responsibility of aftercare if there is something that is creating a potentially for the sake of growth maybe a slightly unsafe or uncomfortable situation but there needs to be some kind of aftercare and cool down incorporated into that um and it definitely felt like 
that happened with the show at the at Leaf. And the fact that it was in Leaf, I thought was really nice because it was such a like that it's it's just a really nice venue that would not normally allow people who are vulnerable from the street in. And it's like your this is your fucking space. This is yours. And I know I thought that was also a lot of that goes down to creating a safe space. Um, we've, we've well. mentioned Leaf a few times now. It feels like a little bit of a plug. It's a, it's, a, it's a cafe bar in Liverpool. But what I think the important message for me when I think about, about that is that when you talk about community psychology and getting to know your community, it's not just about the individuals. It is actually about the businesses as well. Because the people who run those businesses, the people working those businesses, they have their own struggles. They have their own values. They have their own joys and, and, and all of that as well. And the, one of the things I love about Liverpool is... It is a big city, but it's small enough to get to know people in that way. I was just going to say, I think we've all shared just so many wonderful projects and, and examples of um, some of some of the work you do, and it, it feels like there's a, a real theme of creating safe spaces to um, to listen to people's voices that may not be be heard otherwise, and to give a voice to people and to to make the ideas of psychology more accessible. And it, I can see how much you're doing that in your work. I guess I'm just wondering from each of you, what what brought you to to understanding the importance of these sort of things? What brought you to the ideas of community psychology? What's the story around that? I, I think what something I, I've always found quite difficult is to um, talk to people about myself. Well, I used to anyway, um, and. I think it was because growing up, I was very isolated. I had my family unit and there was a lot to keep um, from the outside world within that family unit. And I think there's a lot of importance placed on family at the moment, you know, and, and always has been, you know, which is, is you know, families are very important. Um, but there isn't as much importance placed on communities. And I feel like if we had as much value for communities as we did family, like people would feel more in, in, included in things in a way that would allow them to feel, I think it's about feeling safe. Um, I think there's, there's, there's something about um, expectations. So what Saeed was saying before about how do you, how do you crack it? How do you get people into a space to talk about themselves? I think it's what do you want people to talk about? So when I was doing creative writing and I had groups of people, you know, to, to come in and do creative writing, I think there was a first, there's a lot of um, expectations on, oh, well, this is a group of people who have mental health problems, who have problems with homelessness and drug addiction, and we're going to ask them to write about that. You know what I mean? And that's just totally unrealistic, totally unfair way to go about things because you're speaking to people, you know, and they're much more than than, than that. Um, so so there was never, ever any onus on, like, oh, tell me about your trauma. Tell me about, you know, that time you was homeless. Tell me about when you got beat up when you was a kid, you know, and this and that. And, uh, it, Tell me about how lonely you are. It was never there. It was always just let's write a story about like what you're seeing walking in to, to this to this workshop this morning. 
let's let's do an exercise on you know there's an old woman on a bus what's she thinking about they would bring themselves much more once they got over that hurdle of like you know oh this is creative writing i feel a bit funny about this most people kind of like haven't done it um and then what you would find was what people would end up writing about and sharing with each other um there was a lot of things people had in common and it, what they had in common wasn't that they'd all had you know an experience on the streets or whatever is that like you know oh i went there when i was a kid too i actually really enjoyed that and and then also what would happen you would get themes coming up which would then naturally start discussions about people's feelings so you know you you might write a story about someone who has something happened to them and then people start sharing and i think it's about like just not having an expectation that you're going to come here and you're going to speak about stuff you know that is 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 uh, very personal and um you know you're going to give us a sub story and those types of things because you'll find that the, the struggle of through shared kind of like communication in just storytelling it comes naturally so I think there's the idea of expectation. And I think I think that's one of the things that, that like clinical psychology, that all those scary scientific words put people off counselling, you know. Oh, I don't want to go to counselling. What is it? Is it a, a, a talk, a therapy group? Th- those things are terrifying and I've been in them. And you sit there and no one says anything. I mean, I was forced like into it type thing. Like you ha- I had to sit in a room in a circle with people until someone said something. And it was just really like tense. And then someone would go, oh, I didn't like the way you looked at me the other day. And then it would all go off. And I just felt like, well, you know what? Maybe there was a better way to do that. I, do you know what? I never thought of it as community psychology at any point. When I, I was working on the, uh, in the NHS, working on workplace health and leading the workplace health there. And when I left, I just wanted to, I came back to Liverpool, I was working out in Preston, I came back to Liverpool and I wanted to create just a, just a, an event that kind of just brought people together and just 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 got energy energy going. Actually, there was a lot of guitar music going on in Liverpool at the time and we went out and, and we didn't like guitar music, so we decided to create um, this night called Soul for Soul. It was just, it was just a, a live band night and people came together and we had music and everybody kind of just related. But out of that, without realizing it, we created this community that was just so started to support each other. So people that maybe had not seen each other for years would then connect and start talking again. And, and it started to happen. We did this thing, it was once a month. And the our community came out of that. And relationships came out of that and interactions came out of that and loads of learning, people kind of connecting came out of that. And when I look back on it now, when people talk about it now, they say, oh God, I wish it came back. And the energy that people felt and the vibe and all that kind of stuff. And it supported people's well-being. It supported people's psychological well-being um, and a kind of emotional well-being. But we never started off with that in mind. Um, and I think that kind of lends into what, what Jay, James um, is saying about, um, it doesn't have to be kind of prescriptive. You don't have to have a specific, you're coming here to do this. 
we just have to create. When you look at the events, um, the homeless event that we talked about, or the psychological thing, we just we just decided to create something that was about bringing people together. Said, I remember um, when I was in training, my clinical uh, director training program was uh, at Lancaster, still is clinical director now, Anna Daishis. I remember her saying, um, I d we don't need to create great clinical psychologists. We just need to help people become good people. And it, it got me thinking about clinical psychology and how really our, our job is to make ourselves not, not be needed. <clears throat> and towards the end of training, in fact, in my final year, I, I, I had my first child. And when, when he was born, when Ewan was born, I remember thinking, I just want... I want the world to be a little bit better. So in the in the way where, um, as clinical psychologists, we need to make, make ourselves not needed. At some point, as a dad, I know I'm going to not be there anymore. And I want the world to be able to look after my kids. And that got me uh, really thinking properly about community psychology and thinking, how can we make it so that if I'm not here, if clinical psychology is not here, the world still kind of, along in a in a in a, a brilliant a brilliant way i remember hearing um i think i think it was uh alan pardew a football manager saying once every club i've been at um i've left it in a better state than when i arrived and that, i reckon that's that's our job as people is to, to leave the world to leave communities to leave our families to leave everything in a slightly better space than when we arrived and you can't do that on your own you can't just do that in a therapy room you've got to do that with people yeah i agree with you mate definitely i think um there's a danger potentially of an obsession of wanting to create a space a safe space all the time because a lot of the time those spaces already exist mm. and are already moving and functioning in their own ways from different pockets of communities um and then it's about being careful of how you interact and engage with them but like I came into an interest of community psychology um, and basically what like my art and practices um, because of a sense of urgency and deep loneliness and feelings of isolation and alienation and then finding kind of like with Jamie talking about his family and that, that being a very kind of tight network um and that comes with benefits and um what's the opposite of benefits positives and negatives and all of that um and in the same way i found a queer family and we kind of started creating um i would i would meet these people in spaces that were safe for us to be in and to share and um and to be intersectionally in, involved in as well um, like as a disabled person, as a queer, I, um, I am normally safer in queer spaces than I would be in heteronormative spaces. That, that space becomes safer because a lot of people who aren't invited and safe in other ones come together and work, try their best, like fail, of course, and learn, but um, try their best to make it safe for as many people as possible who aren't, for as many people as possible who need that space. Um, I think there's something kind of radical happening at the moment where certain events and shows and anything like that are kind of actively saying no to some forms of some demographics 
because it's not their space and they have the world. Um, and on that note of the world looking after your son, for instance, um, and or your child, um, and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, I like you want to work yourself out of a job, basically. Yeah, that's what I've always, and the reason I do what I do is I want to work myself out of not having to constantly say, stop doing that. And then eventually I can just stop saying that for a bit. My kind of theory is that if all white, straight, cis, non-disabled men had therapy, that like just had immediately compulsory access to therapy that would be free, let's say, um, the rest of us probably wouldn't need anywhere near as much. That would be nice. I had a really cool experience a couple of um, in a, a couple of nights that Tammy's worked on. Uh, you know, eat me and preach. Um, and there's one in particular that really sticks with me is when when I stayed for the disco afterwards. Now, even when I was younger, I never enjoyed going out to town. The pressure, the the, the people, the music, the the lads. The, Girls, so it all was just like too much for me. And when when I stayed afterwards, uh, um, this this is a it's like a, like a drag show. Um, I, I don't know how, how you know how to describe it properly, but it's it's a drag show, and but it's kind of quite edgy. It's dark at times, and it's just really fun. And um, I went with Steve once as well. Yeah, and. But this time I, I went with my partner and we stayed afterwards and we danced. And just the, the difference of just like not having these um, feelings of people leering and, you know, the types of things that you normally get in town, it just felt so much happier. And my partner's really into dancing when she was younger. That was her therapy. She would go out and, you know, she would go out with her friends and she would dance and she would go to raves and do all the things that come with that and just have a great time. And it was probably what, you know, they got her through. Um, some years of her life was just having that sense of, of the dance community and the raves. She had the boss time as well. And I felt for a minute like, oh, wow, this is this is actually, like, a thing that, like, can be enjoyed. And it was because, you know, going back to Sammy's point, there wasn't all these fellas, like, standing around with pints, looking up people and just all this performance and that it, people were just to the point um what one of the women she just like took her top off and was dancing and it wasn't a thing do you know what I mean no one was bothered it was just just dead relaxed like so yeah definitely like Tammy is doing great work and, and the people she works with and it would be great to see more of that atmosphere definitely yeah I think it was really nice to hear um through your different examples how you've brought people together and maybe are practicing in ways that align to community psychology ideas without necessarily needing to call it that. I was wondering, Steve, you mentioned about your hopes so that you want to help to create a world that looks after your kids. What do you think that world looks like and how do you think we can move towards that? I, 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 it looks like the um, after party that Jamie was at, <laughs> that, that Tommy had been part of leading where, you know, we, we could all just, be, be, and it's and it's okay to just be however we are. So often we see um, messages about being told how we need to be, 
if we're told how we need to be it um it limits the potential for what we can become um and i think we need to keep on opening up and not not shutting down these 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 places where we all look look out for each other one of the great things i think that happened at the start of uh covid and lockdown in the the first round was the folks started looking out for each other properly and saying you know i'm gonna see if my neighbor needs any food i'm gonna find a way despite these restrictions to look out for each other i know a lot of like the, the clapping stuff got a lot of criticism and as well as its benefits but it just for, for me made me think oh you know everybody wants to just say i'm here and i know you're there and then let's let's be together in this i think it's that thing of compassion and self-compassion i think if we can look at creating communities or a world that is compassionate or experiences compassion and practices compassion but also individuals that practice self-compassion within themselves i think it makes it a lot easier for people then to share that and there's there's an openness that comes with with um, being compassionate. Um, there's a supportive element that comes with being compassionate. There's a kindness that comes with being compassionate. Um, Sorry, so when, when, when you and I meet, right, I reckon we spend 80% of the time with you checking in on me and 20% of the time with <laughs> me checking in on you. And you kind of live your life like that. I, I, I want to I know how... How do we? I don't agree, dude. But anyway, carry on. Yeah, so, so how do we? How do we do this? Looking after each other without sacrificing ourselves. That's what I'm not sure about at the moment. Because mm. I'm worried about that in community psychology. We always end up with the same people putting themselves forward and being eaten up for it. Mm. Mm. I see that with you, Jamie and Tammy as well. You're always putting yourself up. You're always stepping forward, being there, and and it comes at a cost. Even if you like it, it comes at a cost, doesn't it? Suppose that's where the self-compassion comes in, isn't it? That self, that self-care comes in. I think I think that's where that comes in. I completely agree in relation to the like self-compassion side of things. And I think so last year, for instance, I was working a lot trying to kind of um I don't know, it was one of the early years of my I'm still early years of my freelance like artist profession um and I was desperately trying to stay relevant and a lot of my work was being a lot most of my work if not all is autobiographical and I was going through the PIP assessment process which was very horrible um and I'm sure a lot of people understand how and why I'm not going to go into it but yeah it's not a pleasant experience and a lot of my art was focusing on that and addressing it and talking about it and it was fantastic and great and it got me to where I am now however I made myself very very unwell in the process um, and I found myself putting myself out there far too much for the sake of the greater good and for the sake of this constant need to, to be demonstrating what's going on in this world in relation to disability activism, um, and then still living and existing as a disabled person in this world, which became exhausting. Um, and 
then I decided to take a break and not make myself and be compassionate to myself and be and not guilt myself into being like you should be tackling this how dare you like I don't expect everyone else to be tackling everything all at once and I don't know why I didn't let myself do the same um and since then I've started being a and, and so basically the long story short is that I became quite toxic and at times abusive towards the people I was around last year because I was resentful and I was angry and I was exhausted. And then since kind of taking a break and practicing compassion towards myself, I've been kinder again, compassionate again, and um, have learned how to rest, which I think is something in any kind of mental health scenario is really difficult. Um, especially with trauma, because sometimes you associate, you think it's rest and you're disassociating and whatever. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of how the world could, gosh, these kids really gain a lot of airtime, but like how the world could all collectively um, look out for the younger generation, especially so that we don't have to do all of the work and that kind of thing is mostly just listening to the younger people as well um, and learning from them so much is being imposed and put onto them and then they have to fit into a box and then that box doesn't fit them and all of that kind of stuff and I think that the younger generation that I've had the experience with so far are way ahead on the queerness side of things as it is but like they're just really on it and it's beautiful and I think that genuinely we could learn a lot from them before trying to fix the world for them instead. Yeah, I think the self-compassion like thing is massive. Like, I feel like, and the point that Tammy made before about people need therapy is that there's a lot of people walking around very wounded and they don't even realise because we're just told, you know, as, as Saeed said before, just get on with it. You know, you've got to be tough, you've got to get on you got to go to work you've got to do this got, and then you've got to have a family as well and it's like how do you manage all of that like um you know if they're the, the stories you're you're kind of like trying to fit into and you're doing all you can to do it and where's space for you and your self-understanding you know um and you're passing that on to the next generation because you're teaching them on unhelpful damaging ways of thinking and seeing the world so I feel there really is got to be like, and and there are really practical things that you can do to help that, like um, centered around, I suppose, the 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 uh, economy mindset people have, like give people less work hours, pay them more money, you know, make school less like um, uh, a mirror of the the nine to five workday, all these different things, you know, like let's let's center it around what is all, what's more important than than that. Because um, I think there is, like, at the moment, there is a global mythology that seems to have taken precedent over our more kind of compassionate, passionate selves. And it all gets squeezed into, like, what's your worth? How can you add value to this um, kind of economy? Um, and it's very damaging and it alienates us. And there was some really fantastic work I I, I uh, came across 
when I was doing my MPhil. And it was um, uh, Bruce Alexander, his theory of addiction is the dislocation theory of addiction. So he's a psychologist who in the 70s was doing experiments on rats. And um, he laughs now and goes, how stupid, you know, we do these experiments on rats. And then we go, it must be the same with people as well. (laughs) But he did. Um, And some of the research he was doing was about morphine addiction and drug addiction. Uh, and he was getting the rats addicted to drugs. And then one day he had this thought, and it was like, um, well, we've got all these rats in cages. Maybe that like influences how much they use these drugs, because they're probably not very happy. So they created something called Rat Park, where like there was um, the rats were free to roam around. And I thought you probably might have heard of this experiment. Um, and they had balls and food, you know, balls to play with, food to eat, and you know. Um, uh, they could mate and have babies, and there's loads and loads of space. And he and and he gave them the same access to morphine as the caged rats, and, and the rats that were free to roam and be more happy took much much less of the morphine. Some of them still took it. He even tried getting them addicted first to it, and then putting them in. And again, he took less than the rats that were caged. Um, but after a while, he just got fed up of um, you know addiction research and. He just decided to write a book on the history of psychology. And um, he couldn't escape addiction because he was looking at, like, different periods of time. And what he kept coming across, eventually, he didn't really notice it at first, and he was like, hang on, there's a pattern here, was that in any place where a culture is displaced, dislocated, the rate of addiction rises. So, you know, prominent example probably would be the Aboriginal people, you know, the First Nations of Australia, dislocated from their land, massive, massive alcohol, drug, gambling, addiction um, in, in those communities. So he, 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 he kind of, like, had all these examples of that happening all throughout history. So now, now he, he, he thinks that the real kind of, like, driver behind addiction to all kinds of things, not just drugs, gambling, porn, internet, you know, whatever it is, shopping, bingo, all these different things, is it's just looking for something to fill that that hole that should have been offered by community, by spirituality, by, you know, connection to the land. Um, and then there was another interesting experiment. I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll shut up after this bit. <laughs> there, there was a guy, um, uh, what's his name? Michael, Michael Chandler, I think. And, and in the First Nation people of Canada, in their communities, the young people were um, in some of the areas, in some of the communities, the, the rate of suicide in young people was like 800 times higher than, than the average. And in other communities, it was like zero, like next to nothing in young people, the rate of suicide. So when, once they had that statistic, they looked into, they wanted to find out more about it and they went and spoke to people. And what they found was in the communities where the rate of suicide is very low in young people, like next to nothing, those communities still had elders who told stories about their people and about the land and about the mythology. And it, you know, connected them to something other than themselves. You know, there was a group of people and they were connected to them. And that was part of their history and their present and their future. And they would always have that. And then 
in in the areas obviously where where the suicide rate was really high amongst low people in these First Nations communities. They were people who didn't still have elders telling stories, who didn't have that connection to those stories, and were part of um, you know a consumer kind of culture. And, and they found it very difficult to even narrate kind of where they'd come from and who they were and where they were going. So, so I found that really interesting, really powerful. So I think in the future, we just need a strong sense of um, there's something more important than your, your struggles aren't your own. You should be able to share them with everybody else and we should all be able to come together and we should be able to connect in that way through stories like... And that there the, the needs to be some type of, and this is a bit idealistic, but like a new global mythology, do you know what I mean? A new a new set of symbols and like signs and ways of seeing things and that we can all kind of like fit into in some way, even if we just adapt it, which goes beyond the kind of current um, global mythology we have at the moment. That's That's what I think. I saw a side nodding when you were talking, Jamie, and I could see Tommy leaning in as well. Jay, the things you said there were just amazing, amazing, and the importance of storytelling is is huge. I guess you've you've all talked about, um, yeah, the, the the values that you hold dear in terms of looking out for each other and feeling safe to just be. But you've also shared about how this this work and and helping people's voices to be heard, how how that can be difficult because you can lose part of the need to to be compassionate towards yourself in that. And I'm hearing that self compassion is a really important part of this work. I'm just wondering if you were to hone it down to one piece of advice for somebody who's wanting to start on this journey of bringing community psychology ideas into practice. What would that advice be my advice would be to 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 listen especially especially people like me the the white male easy to speak easy to be listened to easy to be flat platformed so just shut up and listen and be with people a bit more um i think kind of similar to steve's i guess a bit but like something to do with in having a balance of self-compassion and then leaving your ego at the door but not to not to the degree where it's yeah where you lose that element of self-compassion like I do think that there's so much so many people in this practice um and a lot of them do tend to fit Steve's demographic as well where they just experience so much guilt and shame attached to their identity that they're just trying to fix and like do something good for someone else and that tends to not always end very well and ironically ends up making it about them again and so I guess my advice would be to listen to the people who you want to create that that space for um, and research so that they don't have to always talk to you about it and um, also question constantly why you're doing what you want to do. Like, what, why? Um, are you happy with what you're doing and how you're doing it? And does it have to be you doing it all the time? Like, always. Like, I've kind of... This is a bit of a sidetrack, but 
I've been working nonstop all year, which I'm grateful for, but exhausted by. And the last piece of work that I have kind of released feels a bit like I'm, I feel now comfortable to give it a bit of a rest because I feel like that, what I've just done is what I've been wanting to do for a long time. And now I feel like someone else can take the reins for a while and that's fine. And it's that kind of thing of start, once you start, know that it's not always going to be you at the end and it shouldn't be, it's not about you. Yeah, I think that's the same with anything to do with community. Um, it's never just one person. And so I guess it can't always just be one piece of advice. I think that's really powerful, thank you, Tammy. But it, it not just being about you, it's about the community. I think there's some some very good advice there. Um, listen to others, you know, leave your ego at the door and stuff, all stuff that you kind of need to learn how to do. I would say as well, I suppose just personally, because it's something I've, I've experienced, is that, um, you know, there, there is value in what you're doing. It can sometimes seem like the bigger picture can be very overwhelming, like, you know, and you can get to thinking, I feel like I'm not making a difference or doing anything. You know, you finish a project and you go and walk back out in the world and it looks the same. But you are having an effect. Uh, or you know, let people have an effect on you as well. I think it's it's like I I remember I'd been I'd been doing my creative writing group job for a year, and um, I, I was going to uh, therapy as well. And I was just I have very uh, low self value. This was a little bit a couple of years ago, but it's, you know, still relevant, I suppose. And I was saying to to to, to the counsellor like, oh, you know, and I just do this this job and I don't I don't think I'm very good at it and like you know I don't feel like anyone gets it and she was like oh, how long have you been doing it for a year and she was like well the people keep coming <laughs> like yeah like people always come do the same people come yeah like the same people come like every week why are they coming back if, if you shit <laughs> like if they're not getting nothing out of it and I was like oh yeah of course yeah okay yeah, and that because then when you see people are getting something out of it, it becomes much more interesting as well. Like in terms of going, all oh, right, so this person is really getting something out of this. So what what are they getting out of it? How can I how can I make it better? Did he want something more out of it? What is it? You know, and you can just kind of speak to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I suppose if you ask someone who struggles with that talk to someone and, and just kind of like trying a, a good perspective on getting the value, seeing where the value is in what you and others are kind of bringing to um, what it is you're doing. I think that I don't think there's, there's, there's much else to, to, I could really add to that. I think ev everything that's, one of the things that has been important that I've kind of noticed is like-minded people. If you're, if you're trying to create create something, yes, listen is important, but also having a support network for yourself. If you're the person trying to, and I don't want to use the word lead because I think really, like Tammy said, you can't really, um, the aim is to take yourself out of it, but within taking yourself out of it, you should have a support network and the people and what you're trying to create, if that makes sense. So I know that if I was trying to 
um, when we were trying to create stuff in Brink, we had other people that, we had Steve there, we had other people from PSS that we could go to and kind of just bounce off whilst we were trying to create create this thing, if that makes sense. And I think I think when we're talking about, it's so easy to be passionate about something and want to create this thing and you, you submerge yourself in it completely and it takes over, you t- it takes over you. And that's where the self, that self-compassion and self-care stuff comes in as well again. And that if you have a support network as the person who's trying to create, uh, as much as you're listening to the community you're trying to create for or, or you're trying to support or contribute, that you also have um, a group of like-minded or individuals that will call you out or that will encourage you to keep open in what you're trying to do. So you don't, you're not in there with, well, I must do this, or I think this is how it works or how it should look like, if that makes sense. So I think that's really, really important. Um, and then the other thing is just to let it be organic. And I think one of the things that, that's, that's really powerful is this having, creating things that are just, when you bring a group of people together and they connect, life happens. And when life happens, magic happens. And, and I think it's just not being too prescriptive about, what you want to do, especially when it comes to communities, because there's so many different personalities and energies flowing around. Um, and it's just allowing that to take shape for itself and then and then addressing whatever comes up as a result of that, because things will come up and and you know, um, but that's part of for me anyway, that's part of the energy of community and what community is about, if that makes sense. So I think that's definitely what I'd say. It's just just to definitely not. Yeah, have support for yourself, but also not be the main in it. Take yourself out of it and just let let it organically live. And and having in mind what the what the needs are, what you're trying to do. And I think don't be too prescriptive. I think it's it's really important. Thank you so much, all, all, all four of you. I think we've really seen that organic nature of what you do, and it's just. Your, your passion and your energy really shines through as well. But I think we've had a lot of podcasts talking about different ways of doing the, the ideas of community psychology, but to have that reflection about thinking about the need to take care of ourselves and, and self-compassion is something that we've not touched upon before. And I think it's really important uh, and really helpful advice for, for us to think about. Um, and I just want to thank you all again for joining us and, sh- and sharing your experiences. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you for the, for the opportunity. It's been good fun. It's been um, powerful stuff, guys. I've um, had a tear in my eyes a few times. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are Discovering Community Psychology. We're also over on Twitter at Discovering Community Psychology. And we'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas or thoughts on today's or any of our other episodes. So please do get in touch.